1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was there continues to be a worrying development as the summer winds down higher case numbers of COVID-19 in Ontario over 300 on some days this past week. And while these cases are concentrated among young adults, this trend has unsettling implications for older people. The last thing we would want to see are renewed outbreaks of the virus in long-term care, which result in deadly consequences. And then there are the outbreaks that have already started in schools as children continue to go back to class. Our Zoomer squad joined Libby Snymer on Monday to discuss... Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer Magazine; Bill Van Gorder, interim chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, vice president here at Zoomer Media and CARP's chief marketing officer.
2: I think that the real fear here is going to be whether the bubble spills back over into into the Zoomers, and I think that that's the big worry. I think if a lot of young people are uh, congregating and uh, quickly creating mutual uh, infection or you know, contagion back and forth so that you're seeing a spike. Um, the question is, do they then go back home? Where are they being isolated? How are we protecting the population that is most vulnerable? Because if you knew that all of these younger people are going to survive this and are going to be fine, I'm not saying you would be indifferent to it or not care about it, but you'd have a very different response than if you thought that they're now going to fan out back into the wider community and that um, older people who have been so assiduously trying to protect themselves are suddenly going to be hit with potential, uh, you know, infected people or contagious people. That's the worry. Where does it lead from here? And I don't uh, have a good answer, except it's up to every one of us and our listeners to be very, very careful about expanding our bubble.
3: Bill, what about long-term care? What are the worries there?
4: Well, with long-term care, of course, uh, as the rates uh, go up and, and climb dramatically in Ontario, uh, really concerned about what this is going to mean to long-term cares loosening up on their restrictions because there's been a, a real dichotomy of of issues around how do we allow our older adults in long-term care to live a proper and and uh, and useful life where they can where they can uh, flourish uh, rather than under the strong restrictions that really created health and mental problems with uh, many of them so as the as the rates go up outside it's going to put pressure again on long-term care facilities and and Seniors CART members are very concerned that it is the younger people who are really inconsistent or actually ignoring uh, restrictions. The last survey I saw showed 53% of people were still not strongly fighting and doing the things they had to do to uh, control uh, COVID. All of this creates real worry for our older adults.
3: Peter, I'm also wondering about, you know, kind of a generational antipathy as a result of this. What what do you see there?
5: Yeah, well, um, I I, I guess the big problem is that um, young people just aren't scared of getting it. Like, the overwhelming majority, it has, you know, don't even show symptoms when they have it. They, They have, you know they don't have to go to hospitals some do but most don't so and and they've been they've been at it now since march and it's hard to keep them focused on the goal because while they're going back to school now you know they're getting back together with their friends they in their minds you know they've done their bet and it's time to move on with their lives and uh so I, I can understand their their viewpoint, but it's not really conducive to um, eliminating this pandemic. Are,
3: are you finding that in your own son? Um, you know, he's he's quite good, but you know, he
5: he's back to school now, and and he he just wants to hang around with his friends, and and he wants to, you know, he he rented the ice the other day to play hockey, and those kind of things are good for him, and and I, you know, I'm very supportive, but also there's that chance that. Uh, you know, are we letting our guard down? Are, are we letting him do too many things? So I, again, it's like everything with this pandemic, where you just you just don't know how much you can do. You don't know where to stop. You don't. You know, it, it's just the, the 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 sort of fear that lingers on everything you do.
1: Peter Mugrich, senior editor of Zoomer Magazine. Bill Van Gorder, interim chief policy officer at CARP. And David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media and CARP's chief marketing officer. Our Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. An ominous tweet by the CEO of the University Health Network last weekend has prompted a conversation about second wave concerns. Dr. Kevin Smith posted, quote, I'm worried we've gone from zero COVID inpatients for some weeks to seven, the majority in ICU. It's time to act. We know how to turn the tide on increasing cases of COVID. Mask, physically distance, hand wash, limit gatherings, test, trace, isolate, get serious. Dr. Prabhat Jha is an epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health. And Dr. Susie Hoda is an infectious disease specialist and medical director of infection prevention and control at the University Health Network. They joined Libby with their perspectives on Monday. It's very worrisome what we're seeing, the trends in Ontario as well as
6: within Toronto where we are located. We're definitely seeing case counts go up and fairly rapidly over the last couple of weeks. Um, to me, that signals that we could be entering
3: into a second wave and uh, and, and it's very worrisome indeed. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ja, do you think that we are entering into a second wave or is this just some kind of uh, random spike because people are socializing?
7: I think it's actually a rebound wave, not a second wave. And I'll tell you the difference. A second wave would mean basically we've controlled the infection completely, and then it has been hanging around and then comes back in a big way. I don't think we're at that stage. Uh, I, I respect what Dr. Smith has put out as a caution, but there was one part where he made some conjecture, which I think we have to be careful about, which is he was worried that Are we going to get back into basically hospitalizations and death doubling every few days as occurred in, in April? No. I think if you look carefully at places in Europe that have opened up even earlier than us, what they're seeing now in the rebound phase is significant increases in cases but a very slower and much lower trajectory of uh, increases in deaths or hospitalizations. And provided that our healthcare facilities have the ability, which they now are much stronger in position to do so, to deal with any increase in cases, then I don't anticipate that really terrible scenario that we had a lot of excess deaths, particularly in nursing homes in April, uh, April and May of this year. Uh-
3: Dr. Susie Hota, does that give you any comfort at all? You know, I think that there are a number of scenarios that could
6: happen, and I agree. It's, it's hard for us to know exactly how, um, you know, how intense this is going to be uh, coming up in the next several weeks and months. Uh, we are definitely in a better place to deal with things overall as a system. Uh, but, you know, some of the trends we're seeing, too, may be just reflective of who currently is transmitting the infections more often. So the younger age groups seem to be more involved Um, And that might have a spillover effect into other age groups that might be more vulnerable. So I think the bottom line is we we can kind of, um, you know, postulate what might happen. Uh, We'll see how it plays out. And in the meantime, I would love to avoid getting into that scenario altogether if we could tighten up our public health measures.
3: Mm -hmm. Is the problem just COVID fatigue? People are just tired of following the rules so closely. You know,
6: I, I think that's a big part of it. We've been in this for so long. Uh, the summertime tends to be a time when people relax a little bit in general. Um, and so the COVID fatigue is something we're going to have to battle for uh, for as long as this is going on, this pandemic is going on. Uh, it, it's it's something that uh, takes a lot of effort and work because it's about changing behaviours. Mm-hmm. Dr. Shah?
7: I think our goal should be to keep hospitals and healthcare safe, particularly the nursing homes, which there's been great progress on. We need to keep schools reopen, And then we need to look carefully at places where there's active community transmission. And that actually is occurring just in pockets of, for example, in Ontario, in Peel uh, County, in Toronto, and in Ottawa in particular, And within those, it's quite clear it's occurring in young people and particularly in indoor bars. So I believe taking a page from what Bonnie Henry has done out in B.C., which would be a lot more restrictions or even basically closing down uh, discotheques, bars, parties, going after that is likely to decrease the case count and keep community transmission low so our schools and hospitals can stay safe.
1: Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health, and Dr. Susie Hoda, infectious diseases specialist and medical director of infection prevention and control at the University Health Network. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Ahead of the throne speech this coming Wednesday, there's been speculation the Trudeau liberals are taking the opportunity of the COVID-19 crisis to overhaul social programs, which could include a basic minimum income for Canadians. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his cabinet ministers got together this past week during a retreat to finalize plans as COVID-19 numbers continued to spike. This was among the topics of discussion when our Tuesday strategy panelists got together virtually. Libby Snymer was joined by Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto.
8: A lot of different items are on the table. Um, there's a hard look happening with regards to childcare uh there's also pharmacare and there is there is um, discussion of as i understand it of a of a basic income which is something that's been talked about largely by political science scientists for for many years, but appears to be crafted in the context of COVID, which is to say we've obviously over recent months been through, you know, a pretty grave economic shock as a result of the pandemic and the resulting lockdown. And it feels like we need to update our social supports to ensure that if we ever do face circumstances like this in the future, perhaps for entirely different reasons... Uh, global economic shock or what have you, that we need to have programs in place that will work in the context of the 21st century in 2020 and all that's to follow. Because if there's anything the pandemic has made clear, it's that uncertainty is one of the watchwords going forward. Um, and, and that is especially true of governments. It's very, very difficult to impose change from on high unless you have a significant degree of buy-in from the Canadian people. So this kind of change is actually politically quite risky. But at the same time, it, it, it's, it's an absolutely necessary review that we have to do because we just have to be ready going forward because, frankly, the economy and the global economy won't be able to withstand these kinds of shocks if, if, we, see them, uh, if we see them again and we haven't made the necessary changes.
3: John Capobianco, how do you see that?
9: Well, you know, Libby, this uh, the Prime Minister doesn't have a particularly good track record when it comes to, you know, trying to sneak things through or or trying to use the cover of something else to trying to get some something from a policy perspective implemented. We saw it from the days of COVID when he tried to get the all-reaching power uh, of spending and that was shut down by uh, then leader Shear uh, and then we saw the the gun rules and the gun laws that he tried to implement without Parliament being able to debate it, and now we're seeing this, so his track record on on this is not particularly uh, strong with respect to using whatever tools he can to get things through uh, and i and I also you know I also you know read with interest the fact that you know the Prime Minister you know wanted to consult uh, leaders but but has not consulted leaders with respect to his throne speech which I think gives more fuel to the flames that you know, he um, uh, you know, is not you know, particularly keen about or interested in having an election or wants to have an election. I think it would probably behoove him if he didn't want to have an election to speak to some of the opposition members, at least go through the motions of trying to hear what they wanted to do and, and maybe even implement some of their policies in the throne speech so he could say in the throne speech, I spoke with the NDP leader and I've got this policy in here. I spoke with uh, the Greens and I've got this policy in here uh, to try to get at least them to support a, a, a confidence uh, motion uh, or at least vote against a non-confidence motion. But, you know, the fact that he's not doing that kind of seems to me that he's more than happy to go to an election if an election is, uh, is uh, in, in the cards with respect to a non-confidence vote.
3: Huh, Karen?
10: Hmm. Yeah, no, I I think, um, you know, when we take a step back, I I think that the Prime Minister would be wise to recognize that he has a minority government and that Canadians had gone to the polls, uh, you know, within, what, a year and a half ago and specifically voted to give the Liberals a minority government because they didn't have confidence uh, in that government. So to act, to come up with these bold policy changes, there's nothing wrong with reviewing them and bringing those types of changes to the public during an election. But to impose them at this time, I think, would be premature and, to Charles' point, very, very risky. And I also think having an election right now is very, very risky because we don't, for all, for all kinds of reasons, I don't think anybody wants an election. And so I would just, for the prime minister to be bold, and it's great to have a vision, it's great to have a sense of how we're going to pull through this, that's all important, but we're not through it yet. We're not even remotely through it yet. And so to be to be uh, positioning this government as a majority government with a mandate to do these major social changes, I think is overreach.
1: Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. And Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. The Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, known as CERB, is coming to an end on September 27th. The plan is to move most of the recipients to employment insurance. With the throne speech coming up on Wednesday, that gives the Trudeau Liberals just four days to make any tweaks needed to EI, along with other recovery benefits. According to a report by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, around 4 million Canadians will be affected. Only about half, 2.1 million of those, will be eligible for EI, and three-quarters of those who rely on CERB will be left worse off. The report also says it will exacerbate one of the major inequalities sparked by the pandemic, the she the fact that women have been particularly hard-hit not to mention that this is a development that will spill over into the entire economy and hurt business as well. Joining Libby on Tuesday to discuss, Tony Elenus, president and CEO of the Ontario Restaurant, Hotel and Motel Association, and David McDonald, senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives.
11: One of my concerns, I guess, going from CERB onto other programs, is that while most people will should be able to gain access through some of the other programs, whether it's EI or whether it's some of these new uh, Canada recovery benefits that are brand new, uh, there are about a half a million people who won't be able to gain access to any of them. Um, And for the folks who do gain access, uh, one of the things I think that they should be prepared for is to receive less money. Uh, So the CERB provided a flat $500 a week, um, but on average, people are going to get $377 a week um, across all these new benefits. So it's a, it's a fair reduction for people, I mean, going from 500 to 377. And the other thing to note is that um, all these benefits are taxable, but CERB didn't withdraw that money, uh, didn't withhold that money up front. But EI, as well as these new benefits, these, these Canada recovery benefits will withdraw that money up front. And so a lot of people are going to notice uh, that they're going to be receiving less uh, you know, withdrawing your taxes up front isn't necessarily a bad thing, but, I, you know, I think people really need to be prepared um, that, uh, that the, the, the amount, the support that they're getting is going to change. The other thing that's worth noting is that there's two ways to get served. One is through CRA, you know, where you file your taxes, uh, and the other way is through the, the EI portal at ESTC. Now, if you got served through, through the tax portal through CRA, you will not be ported automatically over to EI, even if you're eligible. Uh, and so there's almost 800,000 people that are in the the CRA portal uh, that are EI eligible, but they may not know that they're going to be moved across, and so there may well be delays there. Uh, you know, so it's it's a huge transfer. It's very complicated. I, I'm, my concern is that there's just going to be a lot of people who are going to be caught in between these various programs, not sure how to apply, whether it's being ported correctly, applying to the wrong one. Uh, so anyway, it's it, it's going to be, I think a, a a trying time for a lot of people who, who've lost their jobs.
3: Tony Alanis, I would imagine that a lot of the people who work in your sector have been on CERB.
12: Uh, yes, they have. And, and the government uh, initiated uh, this program uh, along with the others. And it was good to initiate a program in a time of need. But what I hear from the business community, you know, once the business is starting to open, we are seeing reluctance from many of the workers to go back um, and going to their uh, core job. Uh, And and that is affecting, you know, the employment uh, and and the operation, uh, period, on it. So as the industry is opening up and as jobs are available, there has to be some type of a program that is fair both to the employee and to the business on it. And and I don't know the details around how they're going to go about modifying the new EI, if I can call it that, uh, to really comment on
3: it. David McDonald, are, are is there anything that that you've drilled down on that could help the business end of this?
11: Well, I mean, this is, you know, looking at CERB and transferring over, and these are people who've already lost work. So they're, you know, they're already in the CERB because they've lost hours or they've lost their jobs and so on. And so this is important supports for them. And had those supports not been in place, spending would have been even lower in, you know, in, in food and hospitality because people didn't have as much money. I think on the business side of things, the wage subsidy, um, as well as the, you know, the, the wage subsidy, which, which has improved over time in terms of allowing people to gain access to it, um, but the rental piece is a huge piece. The commercial rent forgiveness program that that really relies on the landlords to to initiate the process, as opposed to the the, the businesses that are renting the space, uh, you know, has it it could have it could have really made a huge difference in a massive fixed cost for a lot of people. And unfortunately, it won't. Um, you know, it, it was a real lost opportunity to really reduce the fixed costs of you know small medium sized businesses who who pay rent and it's a big part of you know their their fixed costs.
1: David McDonald, Senior Economist at the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, and Tony Ellenis, President and CEO of the Ontario Restaurant Hotel and Motel Association. I'm Jane Brown and this is Zoomer Radio's best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. John phoned from Guelph about his concerns around back to school.
4: I had a situation just the other day, which was rather disconcerting. I was walking to work past a schoolyard. It was recess, and there wasn't one child in that schoolyard that was wearing a mask. The teacher was wearing hers. Uh, we're sending our kids to school thinking they're going to be protected and washed over, and here the teacher does nothing.
3: And were they distanced? I mean, this was outside. Absolutely
4: no distancing, huddled the group in little
0: groups, playing basketball, going tandem down the slides. And now,
1: Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jerry in Sutton, who phoned with some observations and questions around a second wave of COVID-19.
2: With the worry about second wave coming on, well, we've also got winter coming on, which means people won't be gathering at beaches, parks. Winter sports like skating, skiing will probably be curtailed which means people will be spending more time at home. So the less people moving around, the less chance of contact with the, with the virus. And why hasn't the government issued some form of sample kit that could be sent out to every household so we could get tested, find out who's a carrier and who's not, and be able to isolate the carriers which are spreading it.
1: That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby and have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416 367 9636 416 three, six, seven, nine, six, three, six. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of fight back.
0: The best of fight back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio.